Welcome to the Bravo Dog Knowledge Podcast. I'm your host, Renee Erdman. I'm a certified dog trainer and behavior consultant and own bravodog.ca as well as thementorshipcollective.com. I'm super excited to share today's episode with you. I spoke with Kim Brophy and we had such an insightful discussion, not only about her book, Meet Your Dog, but about how we think about working and training our dogs and how we look at them as individuals and just just such an insightful and fantastic conversation. So I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome, welcome. I'm so excited today, you guys, to introduce you to Kim Brophy. Um, for those of you who don't know who Kim is, I'm going to get her to do a quick introduction an introductory introduction, um, just to let you know who she is and what she does. And then we're going to have a nice chat. Well, thanks for having me, Renee. Very exciting to be here. And um, thanks for all of your kind words about the book and everything that inspired you reaching out. Um, For those who don't know who I am, uh, I'm an applied ethologist and author of Meet Your Dog. uh, That's been out a few years now. Um, The subtitle is Game Changing Guide to Understanding Your Dog's Behavior. And it is not a dog training book. It's not a how book, it's a why book. Um, And frankly, I think everyone who uh, works with dogs really needs to read it. And it's also a great resource to pass on for the public. It was very much written to be that accessible. Um, But so I've been working with dogs for 20 some odd years now. And um, with that background in applied ethology, did go into dog training and behavior consulting early on, uh, went through the motions of kind of learning all the rules before I subsequently decided to break some of them and come back around and challenge some of the sacred cows in the industry and uh, built the legs model that we'll be talking about, I'm sure today as a result of that effort to integrate the greater scope of sciences for the benefit of dogs and people. And it's kind of just a really exciting time for me because I feel like I've been planting seeds for 20 years that I'm now getting to see harvest uh, in, in the field and and hopefully we'll be able to see those things affect positively hundreds thousands of people and dogs for years to come that's my dream love it it's interesting because a lot of what you are not only in the book but what you speak about um about your work is this isn't anything it's not radical it's not necessarily new and a lot of dog trainers or people that have been working with dogs have really been pushing for this shift for a long time and it's interesting how um it feels like lately in the last couple of months that it's just sort of I don't know the people are just discovering it or they feel like they're given permission to um or confirmation that how they felt about working with dogs um, all along is okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. It's amazing how many people have come out of the woodwork because like, I, I really legit didn't know because I've been trying to bring up, you know, these kinds of topics and conversations for years and have felt really dismissed, frankly. And like, mm-hmm. it was kind of sacrilege to talk outside the operant paradigm for at least the last decade. But I think a lot of us were feeling and seeing the same things. A lot of folks have reached out and said they're from different scientific backgrounds where what I'm kind of weaving together is bringing back their roots of their academic educations. And it it, it is, it's giving permission for those things to work in concert as opposed to what feels like the narrative has become, which is everything is applied behavior analysis. And I use applied behavior analysis every day. Like I completely believe in it, embrace it 100%. I just think that there is a whole lot else going on under the hood. So I'm excited that people feel emboldened now to talk about how they've been feeling and and what their hopes and goals are too. Well, let's talk about some of the pillars. Um, I guess I can refer to them as pillars. Um, What what does LEGS stand for, for those that haven't um, read the book yet? So legs, uh, and it's funny, I always have to throw this in there because I actually hate acronyms, but you know, came up with an acronym because it just makes it easy to talk about, right? Like, um, as you said a second ago, none of this is new. There, um, there have been incredible scientists and researchers for many years that have been uh, focusing on various special disciplines and uh, areas of study, not, a, not all of which actually were directly related to dogs, but have you know, the same kinds of bearings for dogs as they would for any other species. And um, while all of that has been out there, it's been kind of overwhelming. There's just been this huge body of stuff. And so 
our brain gets overstimulated. So I think in a way, maybe partly why we haven't incorporated this stuff before, it's like, where do you start? Um, mm -hmm. And so legs, learning, environment, genetics, and self is meant to be a framework that can hold all of those moving parts from all those different scientific disciplines in one space. So um, depending on that particular discipline, and, and then so you can think about it that way, kind of in a higher level global academic sense, or thinking about it from the dog's particular case, you know, what in their environment or their genetics or their self or their learning might be affecting the behavior. There's all these different sciences that kind of fall within or between those different pillars, um, those components that, that can just make sure that we're looking in all the right places. Um, and it at least gives us a starting point for being more thorough in our assessments and work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I really love how in the book it's, it, it, you've simplified it, but not dumbed it down, if that makes sense, you know, and there are such great tidbits, I guess I'll call them tidbits, but they really are um, important components that we need to be paying attention to um, just every day with our dogs. And, um, and I don't know if, you know, genetics is, is such a, maybe it's a scary thing for people or it's, it's overwhelming, like you said, um, to really understand um, breed types, for example, and, and, and how, how important that, that genetic information is in terms of behavior, um, you know, has it been glossed over? Um, or, it, you know, have, has this narrative been pushed that it's all in how we, we raise them? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think there's a, there's a few components there that um, I've experienced. I mean, definitely with the genetics piece, I think that because of how horribly executed any discussions of genetics have been for a long time and so overgeneralized and left, left field and like not even asking the right questions, right? So like people looking at it like, is this type of dog aggressive or not aggressive? And it's like, well, what do you mean by aggressive? Like, are we talking about predation? Are we talking about altercations? Are we talking about home defense? Are we talking about nipping the ankles of small children because it's actually a hurting behavior? Like we, have, we haven't flushed all that out. So if you ask a really overgeneralized question, you're gonna get really bad answers. And I kind of think that's what we've been doing for a while in the whole like, do, do genes matter? Like, is it all how you raise them uh, conversation? And I think frankly, people just kind of concluded, well, it must be all how you raise them because otherwise we're dog racist. And it's not either or, it's those are not the only options that we have, right? Um, the truth is, is that dogs more than other species even have been uh, artificially selected to such extremes. It wouldn't even, happen in the natural world. Like humans developed them for arguably a lot of maladaptively extreme expressions of behavior that were really useful for us in different historical working contexts, but do not work well at all in modern pet environments. And I really think so much of the rub of what's not working in pet homes now is the result of this lock and key issue that I talk about a lot, where you just have a very specialized design key for a very specialized design lock. And we're taking that key and just cramming it in the wrong lock day after day with so many of these dogs and then we're like well what's wrong with it is there something wrong with the dog or is there something wrong with me oh no i just need to learn how to train it to control it to behave the way i want it to be as if it's like this tabula rosa blank slate animal that we can just make what we want and there's just so many erroneous thinking ways of thinking and all that um so i, I do think we've been uncomfortable with it I think that we have to recognize that because of artificial selection, there is no bearing on a discussion about dog genetics to human genetics. And that just needs to be said so people can get comfortable looking in these directions because ignoring the genetic components for the dogs is a huge disservice to them. So it's not that we're judging them by their genetics, we're keeping genetics in mind so that we can have a realistic point of reference for our potential expectations, not predictive expectations like it just because those genes were the selective force doesn't mean that dog will express that behavior but it also means we shouldn't be shocked if they do and then we know oh they're not abnormal they don't like need prozac and a bmod plan they need to be treated for what they are that we humans made them to be that they frankly didn't even ask to be in the first place um and and we've got to start asking some tough higher level questions right about whether some of these dogs even are gonna be well suited to our modern conditions going forward i mean we're we've come to a breaking point 
Yeah. Well, and, and I think that people are very, in the dog training industry, it, it plays a big role in this. You know, we are, and I'll, I'll just sort of speak generally, but, you know, we're feeding into the, this, uh, this thought process that of fixing things and, um, and specific dogs uh, or specific breed types that aren't suitable for certain homes, trying to keeping, keep them in those certain homes and, I mean, you're just really speaking, you're probably going to be speaking to a lot of trainers out there that are just feeling that frustration and have been for so many years. They're not broken. There's nothing right. wrong with them. They've been bred for something specific and we're trying to fit them into this box or, or whatever it is. Um, and then selling them solutions for training, which is another pressure I think that, that trainers feel. Yeah. I mean, right? it is, it doesn't, it get like inside everyone's head that that's in this field. Like, oh my gosh, like I should be able to get more behavior change out of that dog, or I should be able to fix that, or I should be able to blah, blah, blah. Like we put it on ourselves and then we project it to the public is actually a reasonable expectation through marketing, the way we operate, everything, that it's, that it's a realistic endeavor in the first place for someone to bring you this other being and be like, I need you to program it to do all these things and to deprogram it to do these things. That would be great where do I pay? Like, and, and it's so weird to me, like we wouldn't do that with a spouse or a kid or, you know, um, I think maybe an older model of child raising might've presumed that, but you know, it's, it's sick in a way. And it kind of goes to some of our, um, human cultural behaviors that we have when we believe something is less than or other kind of reminds you of um, actually my colleague, uh, Angie Hale, uh, not Angie Hale, Andrew Hale has been so much rolling off the tongue lately, Angie Cook. So she's on my behavior team at the dog door. Um, recently, she said this and I was like, oh, I'm going to steal this. I'm going to have to use this. Um, she talked about it. It was like we've colonized dogs in a way in the sense that it's it's like what you'd see, say, with the, you know, we just found this mass grave for in Canada with all the Native American children from these schools. You know, I mean, when we go in and we say your behavior and culture and actions and beliefs or beingness is not okay because it's other than mine. So you have to conform to me and you have to be obedient to my model. Like, I think it's not that humans have particularly only done this with dogs. Dogs have been an easy target of ours in that model, but I think it's been something humans have been kind of prone to in general. And, you know, dogs being that they quite literally don't have a voice and are our captive animals. I think for this last 20, 30 years, uh, we have come to really believe that their lot in life is just to be our pet and have increasingly separated from what even my grandparents' generation would have appreciated is like realistic fundamental expectations about it just being a dog and these types of dogs will just do these things. And, you know, my grandmother used to say, you get near that dog when she's got a bone, she's gonna bite you, you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's like now we're like, oh my gosh, the child approached the dog who had the bone and the dog raised a lip. What on oh, earth are we gonna yeah. do? Yeah. It's interesting because I have that as a, as something I wanted to discuss today is that it seems like there's a notable shift in the last, I don't know, 50 years, which is, which is, you know, our parents and grandparents in which dogs were, they were companions and we didn't require much of them as pets right. unless they were working dogs on the farm or wherever. Mm -hmm. um, and now mm -hmm. we have this, um, this level of expectations for dogs and, and their training for specific operant behaviors like heal, solid recall, focus on us, be agreeable with everything everything and everyone. Um, and when, when did that happen and who's pushing that? And I really, you know, I do think the dog training industry, I'm not, I don't like to blame, but I think that we have a, a responsibility and, you know, and it's a hard road. I have to say it's a hard road because when clients, when you have a service-based industry, you know, clients have certain expectations, you don't meet those expectations. They go to the other trainer who may, suppress those behaviors um instead of getting to the root of why they are happening right yeah, that was a mouthful that, that, that's what it is i mean but you're you're really hitting the nail on the head because we're we're trying to create a value shift and a paradigm shift and it is not something that just a few can do on their own this is going to take 
the whole industry agreeing that we need to change those values and our practices so that there isn't the next person to go knock on the door of and say, well, you fix it for me because everyone is starting to say, well, you know, that's really not fair or realistic. Frankly, I don't know that we're anywhere close to the true paradigm shift. I think we are, we've finally seen the pendulum swing you know, and meaning I feel like now we have momentum in the right direction and I can feel it. I can see it. It feels like, like you said, just even in the last few months, it's just been these exponential ripples, but um, we have a lot of work to do yet. And there's so many trainers out there that while the rest of us might start saying, or some of us might start saying, we need to change our values. Like this isn't really realistic and fair. There's other trainers that are going to capitalize on the opportunity of saying, well, those people are just woo woo and all oh, you're talking about yeah. the feelings, yeah. you know, <laughs> when we'll, we can get the job done, you know, a guarantee I'll get the job done. And I, I do worry that TV shows have been part of the problem. Like there's this blessing and curse of the dog training TV shows, bringing attention to the human dog relationship and when there's dysfunction and problems, but it's editing, right? So you get these things that look like these miracle magic wand waving events that are just so transformative and life-changing and they never have any other problems because this magic trainer swept in and did these techniques and changed the dog and rehabilitated them from a bad dog to a good dog. And there is so much to unpack there that is really like unhealthy and inaccurate. Yeah, it, it's, there are always going to be people out there that are, are going to, to try and profit or have been profiting off of exactly what we're talking about, which is, is fixing, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I think that I, I, I don't think that some social media platforms have been helpful either. TikTok mm -hmm. is probably one of the, to me, one of the worst ones. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it is, it's, it's going to continue to be work for us um, to advocate for, for the changes that are necessary. And it's just, I think it's, it's just, it's fascinating to me how, um, how people decide to work with their dogs, you know, I mean, that's a whole nother dis discussion for another day, but there are lots of reasons why people make certain choices, um, you know, so I think, the tough part for people, I think, is, you know, choosing the right dog for when or attempting to choose the right dog for them or their family. And then, you know, the judgment that might be placed upon them when it's not a right fit. You know, I think that rehoming is something that's vilified a lot. But mm -hmm. if we think about it, and I'd love to hear your opinion, um, dogs that have genetic needs, um, herding breeds, and there, you know, you go through it in your book so beautifully is dividing um, the dog breed types and into sort of classes, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're not suitable for all homes. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, some people, humans make mistakes. And, um, you know, how do we do a better job at supporting people once they've made mistakes, um, as well as guiding them to make better choices for dogs that will work for them and, and vice versa. It's a two-way street. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think it's, I don't have all the answers to the questions you just posed, right? I think that that's one of the things that I hope that we all can start me the discovering together. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, I do think it starts with just calling spade a spade and being honest. So that's one of the things that I hope the book helps for, for not just the public, but also for professionals to say here, right? It's not like it's coming from Renee's mouth or Kim's mouth or whatever. Like the trainer doesn't have to say, well, you know, hurting dogs, blah, blah, blah. And then the person's going to say, oh, you're just saying that because you're not a good qualified trainer who can make him stop doing it. You can hand someone that book that's like, read it for yourself, read the history, you know, um, and, and recognize that thousands of people pick up that book and go, oh yeah, that's my dog to a T, right? Because there are very specific differences that we've bred in that um, are tendencies towards those differences. And if we don't call the spade out and just kind of help connect the past with the present, you know, would connect these thousands of years of history of humans and dogs with the now, then I don't know what we're doing. And I think that is kind of a critical disconnect that we have is we all are like living in this world where dogs are pets <laughs> in modern America and developed nations, a dog equals a pet. Whereas actually in 80% of the world, that's not true. 
and still now, right? Where dogs are still free roaming, roaming, cohabitating with people. And it's also not been true for thousands of years before. It's not to say that we didn't have pet dogs and that dogs weren't our partners and companions and friends, but it is very different than what we have as our standard operating model of pet home habitat requirements, needs, provisions, et cetera. And, and to just say, well, hold on, let's connect the two worlds. Let's not tell the story of his breed history at a dinner party like it's a cute story to tell. Let's talk about the fact that this dog goes eight generations back working farm dog. And therefore, I shouldn't be shocked to see these certain emergent behaviors at sexual or social maturity. Um, even if I did everything right with the training and socialization and I checked all the boxes and I did all the things, at the end of the day, if he's still a working line cattle dog, I'm liable to see some of those behaviors pop out at some point. And that doesn't mean I failed, the dog's bad, nothing. And it, and it also sure as hell doesn't mean that we should just bring in a trainer to operantly manipulate those behaviors. I mean, there's a whole can of worms of ethical implications that we at least need to be wrestling with. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think the, um, the most common thing that I see uh, with specific breeds is suppression or not uh, allowing the dog to have an outlet for these natural genetic behaviors. And then as a result, seeing a lot of anxiety and other behaviors and OCD type behaviors and things like that popping out to cope with the fact that their needs aren't being met. Yep, exactly. Because, and I think that's a really important point too. Even when we were doing our um, fifth episode of Beyond the Operant this morning with Mike Chicascio, I accidentally sent you the invite link. Um, <laughs> but we were talking about that and we were talking about how even with positive reinforcement techniques, which we've all thought, you know, at least you're not doing any harm with, I, I think that's actually not true. And we need to be willing to talk about that is that we can do harm with positive reinforcement when what we're doing isn't necessarily making sense for the animal or providing the fundamental relief that they're needing to use Andrew Hale's word. Um, because those natural behaviors are needs, you know, we recognize this going back to the five freedoms being established years ago um, in the Bramble report and this was for farm animals and obviously we know cognitively our dogs are as developed as farm animals more so probably in some cases and so to think well they don't need the affordances and the opportunity to express these natural behaviors because they're pets and they should just be grateful for having this life of luxury and roof over their heads and all these toys and high dollar organic food and whatever but really we all need to behave in ways that are um, very essential to our species. So th think about COVID. I mean, this is providing a great example for us all right now, like even with a roof over our head and groceries delivered to our door and all the medicines that we need and being able to work and bring income in remotely, whatever, there was so much psychological, emotional, behavioral kind of suffering during that much confinement and restriction to our social life, our exercise, um, having routines, um, having outlets for um, our own uh, instinctual behaviors. Um, even if that's something as minimal as just giving someone a hug, you know, that's so essential to our social species. And and that was this short-term thing we went through, right? There was a light at the end of the tunnel. We knew there would be a light at the end of the tunnel. And still the mental health crisis that we experienced as a species during COVID internationally was enormous. And for dogs, there's no end, there's no light at the end of the tunnel a lot of the times, you know? We we suppress these forces that we developed into those dogs. So those instincts that have literally force behind them, you know, inertia, if you will, on like a physics level. And then we want to just put a cork in that somehow, whether it's go to mat, positive reinforcement, train, downstay, you know, and we're using that a lot. Like I think even overuse of something like a go to mat downstay is even if you're doing it positively is making the dog inhibit a lot across the board. Now, if you're inhibiting contextually across the board, only to then open the floodgates here and let all that pressure out in a place that hits the nail on the head for the dog, that's not too much to ask. The problem is many, many, many dogs never get that floodgate. They never get that, that experience where they're like, oh, 
whew, finally, I feel like everything is synced up. I'm, I can experience homeostasis and satisfaction and that relief that's so essential to their well-being. And, and that that's kind of like, and I hope, op open up a whole new world of service models and business ideas that get at the heart of how do we get to that problem as opposed to just suppress and modify and fix. What if we provide? What if it's more support services? And what would that look like? Yeah, well, and it's interesting because most trainers, positive reinforcement um, is only what I can speak upon is, you know, we are often taught replace behaviors that you do not like, replace, replace, re reinforce. And that's not, that's like you said, it does not, it's, it's, it's just a sort of short-sighted way of, of, um, approaching the organism as a whole. And I think that that's really what's missing too is, 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 is identifying, not only identifying our dog's needs as um, genetics and, and breed specific traits, um, those types of things, but just their preferences as an individual. And I think that you touch on that in self as well, right? Yeah, um, right. In your legs model. And it, it really is, we, I think we really need to be looking at our dogs as, as, as the individuals at, that they are and that it's okay that they have preferences, they have needs and that it's okay to change what our human behavior to, I think it's the least we can do, you know, like for all we take from them and the support they give us and, you know, it, it needs to be, be more of an even playing field. But that, again, that's looked upon as extreme um, sort of radical thinking when it comes yeah, to animals. Which is <laughs> funny, like the, the people that when they saw my TED talk left all these comments that were like, you freaking Asheville snowflake for thinking that dogs oh. have feelings and, you know, and it's just funny because it's, there's no radical assertion in my TED talk, like at all. It's really basic stuff that's been validated by science 10,000 times over. There's nothing new here, as you say. So we're fighting though up against a, a paradigm and a model of superiority of, oh, they're just a dog. Like, don't overcomplicate it. Like, don't get all woo-woo and wishy-washy. And you know what? I wouldn't have pulled this out from left field just to create some philosophical argument. The whole reason that we're here talking is because dog behavior problems, severe maladaptive dog behavior problems are through the roof. I mean, 20 years ago, and then even 10 years ago, severe behavior cases, even as someone who specialized in severe behavior problems, probably comprised 10, 20% of my caseload. Now it's like 80, you know, and it's not just my reputation. I mean, regular obedience trainers, like you don't really have that delineation anymore where you have regular trainers and then specialists because 90% of the phone calls coming into trainers are severe behavior problems. And they're not going to turn away business when their books are open. So everyone is kind of taking cases that are over their head anyway, but all operating within that dog trainer model instead of that family dog mediation model we're trying to introduce where it's really incorporating all this stuff. And therefore, um, I, I, that's why they go through six trainers, frankly, you know, is because none of the operant methods are going to hit the nail on the head for that dog if it's not an operant problem that we're having. Yeah, absolutely. Well, tell, tell us a little bit about the, uh, the initiative and the program for dog trainers. Yeah. So, um, basically, uh, you know, in, in a few years ago, trying to figure out what, if I thought dog training was broken, which I've been saying since we published the book, what was my proposal, right? I've always said, don't complain unless you have a better idea. So I tried to come up with one. So what we've come up with is family dog mediation as a, an offered a new model and paradigm um, within which we're obviously still dog training because that is a tool we can pick up and do pick up and employ and we'll need to be able to have those skills as part of that professional process uh, and service as you describe it. But it, it squarely puts the emphasis where it needs to be, which is between the person and the dog instead of just on the dog and therefore the trainer to modify the dog, right? Where it's like the owner can be doing everything wrong and not be paying any attention to their behavior. And um, we don't hold any of that accountable and, and kind of work that into the big picture. So this is about mediating the relationship between two species that are having a problem living together in the 21st century in a captive, modern, indoor, sedentary, largely environment. 
And so uh, as part of that, what we're doing is offering um, a full comprehensive course for professionals or hopeful professionals, people just getting into the field to introduce them to applied ethology and the legs model of integrated canine science as the bedrock for their dog training practices. So um, as part of that, we have a certification that we also offer and will be offering next year um, the ability for individuals who are really committed to get licensed, uh, which will entail some shadowing hours uh, with another licensed family dog mediator. Um, and then those folks can help make that more accessible nationwide to others who would like to do it as well. Um, but I think that I do think we're going to stay stuck if we keep just calling ourselves dog trainers, because in the name itself, it implies the expectation of what we're there to do. And so I feel like we're going to stay stuck if we don't have a massive market disruption. Yeah, it, it, the the mind shift, the, there's just it, everything you're saying is it's not that it's blowing my mind that it's like um, it's just so affirming. And I've had a lot of dog trainers, um, when I've posted your stuff, reach out to me and be like, oh my God, thank you. Like somebody <laughs> has really just given me permission to, to execute my work the way that I've always intuitively felt it should have been done. Mm. And mm. they almost are like crying. And I mean, and, and I, I, I have that emotional response too, when I hear you speak about this, because it, it, it really is... Yeah, I'm taking a big deep sigh because it's it, it really is what needs to change. And I think that this program, um, if it does, and, and I have no doubt that it will um, really be successful, can really be be part of that change, you know. Yeah, and I feel that same relief, Renee. I mean, because I felt as alone as everyone else. You know, I've I, I have I've had my team. I have an awesome behavior team here. Angie Cook, um, my other behavior consultant at the Dog Door, has been working with me for ten years, um, five years at the Dog Door Behavior Center. But I've known her for over ten. She was the director of operations at our local shelter. She took a course I offered here over ten years ago, and she's been um, my confidant and partner in crime, along with the rest of my behavior team, my management um, uh, staff that I have at the dog door. But frankly, even in my own town, like other than just our little connections of people we've been talking to, whether I'm on the board of the IABC, whether I was presenting at the APDT conference, I've had more people for the longest time look at me with blank expressions and crickets chirping in the background, like what? And, and you're like, am I really that off base, right? Haven't we all been feeling that way? Like, is it just me? Am I just copping out and not good at dog training? And then the reality yes. is, no, that's <laughs> not it. It's like, it feels wrong because it is wrong. It's literally scientifically incorrect. It's yeah. not that you can't, it's just that you, whether you should is the question based on the whole picture. So, you know, no one's arguing the efficacy of operant training, right? And, and if we want to go and have like a showdown on our dog training skills, well, then people can go and they can do that and they can use all their awesome different techniques and show off on all the different behavior change they can get. And I'm not even saying that that's all wrong. I mean, this is what I do for a living too. So I'm not sitting here saying don't work as a practicing dog trainer, behavior consultant. But I think getting not just comfortable, but confident about saying to the client when they come in with whatever case it is, you know, I really validate the frustration and the experience that you're having. And I want to help you understand what's actually going on. So first you've got this, and then you've got this. And then of course, with these modern conditions, you've got this, and that's not your fault. It's not your dog's fault. And, you know, what I'm finding is that surprisingly people feel validated and they, they feel like it makes more sense. We've all been scared of what are the clients going to say if we don't just promise to deliver. I've been pleasantly surprised how many clients are like, they get that relief too because they they know it. It makes sense. And they I've had so many hundreds of clients say to me, this is the first thing that's ever made sense. And, yeah. and that's we're giving relief to them too. So, you know, while I do realize it's an uphill battle, I look back to just, you know, five years ago when um, 
there were some, we, we had a lot of momentum going in our own community. And then there was a couple new trainers that actually moved in from out of town and single-handedly tried to destroy what we were doing because they were like, no, it's all how you raise them. You shouldn't be saying this. It's horrible. And they pulled the old animal farm foundation, um, kind of research stuff. That's just looking at the protein coding DNA studies and the whole, um, cocker spaniels crossed with, uh, Basenji studies and saying, you can't tell and blah, blah, blah. And basically once you've crossed one breed with another, it's all a wash and there's no genetic information there anymore. It's really weird propaganda, but it had so much current behind it. Um, that even though epigenetics came along and we knew actually like all the genetic diversity, even between us and chimpanzees is epigenetic action. Like it's not protein coding. And the same is true with all the differences with dogs. We just kind of didn't know what to do with it. And so we didn't weave it in. And there was just so much to kind of fight against and all the breed specific legislation and all that. that I think we just got lost in the weeds and bogged down and people didn't know where to start. So for whatever reason, 2020, and then the beginning of 2021 has been its time. And we were, we're all finding each other and we're all connecting and reaching out. Maybe the world becoming more virtual helped us find each other. Um, I, I wonder about that. And I just wonder whether there was something about the humility of our experience with the pandemic that just kind of made us stop and reassess some things. But uh, it does seem like we really have some, some current this time. And I'm, I'm very encouraged by the amount of folks that are already enrolled in the Legs Applied Ethology Family Dog Mediation course that's launching in September. And Wolf Park is full um, in Indiana in August. And um, so that means we've got close to you know, 200 people so far from all over the world that by you know, this fall will be our first running army of um, professionals that are working to turn that tide and, and help move the pendulum. Well, and I love to hear how it really is gonna, what you sort of have um, planned for it, because um, a lot of trainers, I think, will want to be part of that momentum. I know I do, so that's, I, I definitely will be supporting this uh, 110%. Um, I would love to know from you, um, shifting gears a little bit, what would be your top three genetic nightmare breed combinations for a family. Uh, so three, three that you would put into one that would be literally a nightmare for so like a family. three breeds in one dog. Yep. Yep. Oh my gosh. That's a fun one. Um, so something like a Tibetan Mastiff, um, uh, yeah. definitely being one of those. Um, so a, a, a very old guardian breed. So you're kind of squishing together the natural and the guardian and something like a Tibetan Mastiff, right? Because you're just going all the way back and they're that much less domesticated and they're, you know, definitely developed to hold their ground and not back off. Although really, if I put like a Tibetan Mastiff in there, I might as well throw like a Borble in there too. But one of those yeah. enormous, you know, I'll, I'll take a lion down kind of breeds, probably not something I want to work with in a pet home environment. Um, no. so something bred to take on, you know, 300, 400 pound adversaries, not great pet stuff. Um, and then mix that with a herding dog just to put some real good drive on it. That would be fantastic. So maybe something like a cattle dog. So we also have less bite inhibition. That would be really nice. Um, and then maybe just for the lack of the filter and the removal of any logical thinking, uh, but instead being completely emotional and like, you know, trigger happy, add some scent hound in there, like maybe, um, you know, a bloodhound or something or something else just really emotional without a great filter. That would be outstanding. <laughs> that would be good. Yeah. But if it looks cute, it probably would go over well. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I found out they're breeding Tibetan Mastiff doodles and I was like, how is this happening? Like I, you know, I did I not need to know that. <laughs> no, I just can't do it. It's, and, and it's I not funny. It's just, it's, it's astounding. Not it's not funny. I mean, even the, Aus the Australian, the Aussie doodles, not the Australian Labradoodles, because, you know, Lord knows those are a thing too. But uh, the Aussie doodles, I think is a bad combo. It's too intelligent. It's too intelligent. Very popular here. Yeah. The Bernadoodles oh, yeah. are probably the most popular uh, of the doodle sort of mix here. Mm -hmm. But it, that's a, the misconception about mixes, which I'd, I'd love to hear um, 
your thoughts about, you know, okay, we're mixing breeds, but doesn't that dilute the strength of that, why that, that certain breed was developed? And that's, I think instead of diluting, it just makes it more of a crapshoot, right? So it's like, if you give me an Aussie doodle, so you've got the poodle and you've got the Australian shepherd, you could get all Aussie behavior in this context and all poodle behavior in that context, or you could get none. Like you just, it, I think it just makes it a wild card game. Um, so I try to be prepared. If I know a dog is 50, 50, or even more than 30% of any one thing. And I, you know, that's why I do really endorse genetic testing. I just think everyone should genetic test their dogs, any mixed breed, but, um, if it's more than 30%, it will probably show up somewhere someday, somehow. So I just wanted in the back of my head as a point of reference for what might then help me understand what's happening for the dog, because we do always, we so often assume everything is operant and going through the frontal lobe filter of intention. Um, I had a very sad case this last week where, um, well, they just, they are, well, they're euthanizing the dog, I guess, tomorrow um, of a rescue scent hound pit bull mix that has been um difficult but the family's done a lovely job with the dog difficult in kind of harmless ways up until this last week um or i guess 10 days ago but um the dog has been just kind of impulsive no emotional regulation very little filter no boundaries um and you know, having a difficult time with some modern context as a result, but did beautifully with the stuff that we put in place and was just having a lovely time getting adjusted to the family. And then there was a trigger stacking week where the bear activity in the yard went through the roof and um, that was highly arousing. You know, a lot of bear dogs around here. So we have a lot of the scent hounds that are in the population are also bear dogs used for bear hunting. Bears are then highly arousing for those dogs. So there was a lot of bear activity and then the owners went out of town for a few days and the dogs were kenneled for the first time all together. There's two small schnoodles in the house. They'd all gotten along great. And then came back um, after the dogs were kenneled and because the dogs smelled so bad, they went to wash the little dogs. And um, I guess one of the schnoodles gets really, really, really aroused after a bath like a lot of dogs do and it's just running around doing the zoomies. And it was a trigger stacking event, nothing intentional about it, but the, the hound pit almost killed the schnoodle in front of them. The dog barely lived through it, um, but you know, punctured the dog's jugular in the living room, the whole family, the children were traumatized, you know, and, and the reality is that's, none of that is operant. It's trigger stacking, it's neurological, it's genetics, it's um, modal action patterns that have been selected into that dog and the emotionalism um, that bred out the kind of uh, cost benefit analysis, economy of behavior. Like, is it really worth just trying to kill the schnoodle or could I just tell him to chill out? Right. Like, so we've bred some of those filters out and then the dog doesn't know why she did it either. Right. And then the scary thing is the dog also wouldn't then know why she did it if it happened again. And because it was a trigger stacking redirect, we don't know if it could have been a person. It wasn't really targeted towards this dog, the dog and her didn't have any kind of relationship tensions or problems at all. And so that's a really good example of why we're talking about this, that not everything can be fixed with dog training. Not everything is operant. We are lying to a client if we say, oh, use my awesome dog training technique and that'll never happen again, guaranteed. That's a lie. It is just a lie. Yeah. 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 And I think this, this needs to be said more often. I mean, plain and simple. It's just, it's going to take time and it's going to take more people saying it um, mm -hmm. and being prepared for the, you know, some backlash, which a lot of us face anyways for stating um, what is uh, the truth when it comes to, to dogs. And yeah, it's, um, it, we're in a really tough position, but um, I think it's, it's, things are changing. I'm hoping that they're changing. And, and like you said, there's ripples that I think are becoming more and more apparent. So yeah, yeah, and and that's right. We just have to celebrate what we've got and the fact we're here at all, and we're talking to each other, and all of us are making each other cry on a regular basis, which I absolutely celebrate too. I mean, it's so fun being like, oh my gosh, you're making me happy. Like, and there's it just feels yeah. good, right? It feels good to to feel this sense of connection, and and I think it's so important in a field that probably like many others 
likes to put someone on a pedestal and and then that person who wants put on a pedestal is like oh yes this is like my stuff and i've done this and then this is like you know something that you need my expertise in order to whatever like i just want to put out there to everybody there are so many amazing people coming around this conversation right now and this is not about any one professional any one person this is about creating a table called legs that we can all sit at and together solve these problems because we're each going to come up with special little pieces of the puzzle where someone goes oh my gosh that's such a great idea i'd never thought about that before that could really work you know ways of saying things ways of doing things ways of letting that pressure out for the dog and for the family um the kinds of different things we should be breeding for i mean there's so much to discover if we simply just start asking different questions instead of entertaining the false narrative of it's all how you raise them and sign up with my awesome dog training program and we guarantee results and blah 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 like we just have to call that out as the baloney that it is, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's, um, it, and you know, being an unregulated field does not help. <laughs> I mean, but, but that's another talk for a whole nother day, because what does that even look like? But I don't right. think it helps <laughs> that no. it's basically sort of a shit show. Right. Um, Cause then or, the public's going to go with marketing, right. In that case, not qualification, skills, education, et cetera. If people are good at marketing, Sadly, yeah. you can be a really successful dog trainer. I will say, and I'm not going to say what channel it was, but I've been doing some YouTube stalking lately to see what kinds of dog trainers have the most followers. Oh, bless your heart. Oh my God. <laughs> it's, it's, it's horrifying dramatic. the stuff that people are watching. Yeah. Horrifying. And, you know, maybe we shouldn't be surprised because humanity is kind of, you know, a dumpster fire right now anyway, but, um, it's still really horrifying to see the kinds of advice that's out there, the kinds of videos that people are posting, the kinds of, I mean, not even decent operant techniques, like out of all the operant techniques that I still might have criticism of just because they're not comprehensive enough, even the stuff that's on there is like really bad. And these poor dogs are just so confused, but because they're good at marketing and selling videos and pushing you know, frequency of content or whatever on YouTube, a lot of people are liking it and they think, oh, a professional dog trainer posted it. It must be true. And then our clients go and they try all these things. In addition to the five trainers they've hired in the last three years and the four drugs they've tried, like, and when is someone just going to cut through it and be like, oh my gosh, stop, stop yeah. trying to train the dog to be something that it never was. Let's just start with getting real. Let's start with calling a spade a spade and doing a comprehensive legs analysis. Let's start with the humility of meeting all the parties where they're at, and then let's move forward from there and decide when to pick up that dog training tool for a, for a minute and when to put it down. But I think we have by a long shot really insulted the integrity of dogs by the way that we've been going about it. And I'm just kind of over it, right? I'm just kind of tired yep. of the lie and I'm, I'm, I'm over it. I'm looking, literally looking in a mirror because I have nothing else to add to this because you've said it all. Um, and I just really want to thank you um, uh, so much for just what you're doing. I'm glad it's actually it's gaining some traction and, and you're, you're getting the, um, the traction that you deserve for this, but it's just a starting point, right? Yeah, Not to like right. be a damper on it, but it's just starting. So I think it's going to take uh, trainers, which I'm encouraging all to take this course and to become part of this initiative. I think it's an, an initiative, not it just is an initiative. And that's what we've called the legs. The legs initiative has been the global parent of all these things, the book, the Ted talk, you know, the, um, uh, episodes on YouTube with the beyond the operant thing, the course, all of it, it's the legs is an international initiative. And originally I was thinking national initiative. And then I didn't even realize that there's so many people in different countries that are experiencing the same kinds of stuff in their professional work with dogs. And so I've realized it really isn't an, an international conversation. And, and I have to keep saying that it's a conversation. So we need Renee, we need everyone else at that table saying, I agree, or I think this instead, or have you thought about this yet? Because there's so many of us that have different backgrounds 
that really bring unique stuff to the table. Like none of us have PhDs in everything, y'all. And that's okay. We don't have to know everything, but we have to approach this by checking our egos at the door, which is super unusual in the world of dog training and being like, yeah, I don't know. What do you know? This is what I think or what I've seen and experienced. And this is what I've found. What have you found? But like, that's just not a way we're used to operating with each other. And, and I, but I think we can, it's happening, frankly, it's happening right now and people are shifting. It is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm really excited after having this conversation with you um, today, which I'm so, so grateful that you took the time to do so. Um, and I can't wait to connect offline. Um, and also looking forward to your social media presence exploding. Hint, yes, hint. I know. I'm trying. <laughs> hint, hint. I know. It's, it's funny. I'm like, who do I get to deal with my Instagram account? <laughs> I know. I need to get so much better at it, but... Okay, we'll, t- we'll talk. Yeah. Um, and uh, to anybody who is interested in learning more, I'm going to link up some all the information um, to the podcast episode. And was there anything else you wanted to share uh, before we wrap things up today? Because I know you have other stuff to do. Yeah, just to tell folks to, you know, keep looking at our website. We have an updated website that I think is is good for dog trainers to look at for a few reasons, not just the Dogs Pro page or the Dog Pros page, but because um, it is... It's an example of the narrative you can give to clients because the web page is written for clients and then there's a dog pros page, but it's an example of how to present this information to clients unapologetically. So I think there's some stuff people could use there. Um, and then also just keep up with the beyond the operant conversations. They're really fun and a lot of great stuff is happening there. So for folks to look for those on YouTube on the dog doors channel. And then also, um, you know, for anyone who really wants to ride this tide, you know, please consider taking the course and, um, you know, we'd, we'd love to have you on board. And, and, you know, if anyone out here is doing tons of amazing social media stuff, then call me because I need to clearly hire someone to deal with all the social media stuff that I don't know how to do. And, and my fear has been, and the reason, honestly, I haven't hired someone else to do my social media for me is if the person I hire to do my social media doesn't already get everything we're talking about, then they will make dumb posts that don't reflect what we're doing. So what I would love is for someone who is like having a thousand light bulb moments flashing off in their head like you and I are right now to be like, I do social media stuff and I'll do it for you. So y'all can hit me up. (laughs) Love it. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you so, so much again. Um, and like I said, I'm going to link everything up and point people to you and uh, just a, a big thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Renee. It's been so fun talking to you. Yeah, you too. Take care. Okay. You too. Bye. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Bravo Dog Knowledge. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I did recording it. Don't forget to visit us on Instagram at Bravo Dog Training and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts is super helpful. We love bringing you free content and we hope that you join us again for an upcoming episode.